Good evening, this is Rob McClure bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. UW-Madison Provost John Carl Schultz will resign his position and return to the Economics Department as a faculty member at the end of the school year. That's according to the uh, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Schultz served as the interim chancellor through last summer following the resignation of Chancellor Rebecca Blank and before the appointment of the current chancellor, Janet Manukin. He has served as provost since 2019. Schultz was one of five finalists for the position of chancellor. His candidacy was supported by then-UW System President Tommy Thompson. In the hierarchy of campus government, the provost is second only to the chancellor, and between them they are directly responsible for all academic and outreach missions of the university. In other UW-Madison news, not much has changed in how often marginalized students feel about life on the UW campus when comparing surveys conducted in 2016 and again last year. A Cap Times report on the surveys indicated that only about 6 out of 10 students have a sense of belonging on campus. About half of students of color and disabled students felt they uh, belonged on campus. But this feeling is common to only 3 in 10 students who are transgender or are older than most undergraduates. The percent of students who experienced hostile or intimidating behavior on campus remained largely the same in 2016. While about 14% of all students reported such experiences, the rate was double for transgender students and students with disabilities. The decade-long dispute on the building of a new jail will continue with County Executive Joe Parisi's veto of the County Board's most recent proposal. The Wisconsin State Journal Journal reports that Parisi rejected the latest proposal for a five-story jail because it would stop the the almost-finished design work for a six-story jail that the board approved earlier this year. Additionally, Parisi and Sheriff Patrick Barrett said the five-story plan would cause the current jail facility at the city-county building to remain open. The closure of the antiquated city-county building jail uh, that many have characterized as inhumane is the primary goal of the jail building project. Parisi said in a memo, quote, as of today, only the larger jail accomplishes that fundamental goal. It's quite likely that there is a, is, there is, pardon me, it is unlikely that there is a two-thirds majority on the board necessary to override Parisi's veto. The Department of Natural Resources is calling on you to help with its research into the relationship between black bears eating human food and their reproduction. It's unlikely that there are terribly many black bear dens in the WORT listening area, but we do know that folks listen everywhere online. So if you do find a den, fill out the black bear litter and diet survey that you can find online. But of course, uh, don't approach the den. That's not necessary. And now on to the rest of the day's top stories. At last night's budget meeting, the Madison Common Council debated an amendment to grant the River Food Pantry $1.5 million in funds to move their operations to a new building. The council discussed the amendment for more than two hours before rejecting the proposal. 
leaving a pantry's future uncertain. Our reporter Andy Barrow has the story. Last night, the Madison Council debated a proposal to reserve $1.5 million for the river, a nonprofit food pantry on Madison's north side. The River Food Pantry provides free groceries to families in the Madison area, and it's asking the city for funding for a new building before their lease expires in 2024. The amendment was introduced by Alders Charles Miadze, Sherry Carter, J.L. Curry, and Bill Tischler. It reserves a total of $1.5 million in funding for the river to lease a new facility, which they said will help to address food insecurity in Dane County. Alder Miadze said he introduced the amendment after seeing the state of the river's current facilities. I volunteered there, so I saw the great work that um, they did um, as far as uh, the marginalized community that mainly came there for the services for food. And also, too, when they started to explain to me how bad uh, the shape was of the of the building as far as the parking lot um, um, and the need to expand. The council also heard from community members in favor of providing more funding. Georgia Allen, a former client and volunteer, said that the river helped her when public benefits couldn't. During childhood and later as a working single mother, I relied on food pantries to help chart a path to financial self-sufficiency. Dependence on public benefits alone was exhausting, precarious, and even traumatic due to the benefit cliffs and the many barriers that arise when making, trying to make that socioeconomic jump from working poor to the middle class. However, however, with the support from the river, I was able to bridge food gaps while paying for necessities such as rent, childcare, and utilities, all of which are prerequisites for economic advancement. The debate Tuesday centered on the method in which the money would be distributed to the river food entry. The failed amendment would have required most of the money to come from a general obligation grant which the river would not have to repay to the city. Jim O'Keefe is the director of the City Community Development Division. He says they prefer to lend through deferred payment, zero-interest loans, and that these long-term loans have the advantages of being paid back eventually, as well as allowing the city to make sure that the funds are being used for their intended purposes. Alder Matt Fair also praised the river's work in Madison, but he criticized this as an unusual way to request funding from the city and said that it would set a difficult precedent for future projects. He said instead that the river should seek funding through the usual process first. Doing this would set a really, really difficult precedent for us as a body. It would basically open the doors to people thinking, and for no fault of their own, and not because uh, their organizations are better or worse, just because they would feel like, well, we have a need, and so I'm going to talk to my alder and to staff and see what we can do, and hopefully we can get an amendment into the next budget. Um, and that is really a slippery slope to go down as policymakers because it doesn't take long until we are looking like we're playing favorites and politics are involved. Mayor Saya Rhodes-Conway echoed those concerns. Over the course of not even the last year, I have been approached either publicly or privately by at least 10 different projects including other projects in the food security system that have asked for anywhere from a million up to $7 million for a line item capital contribution to their particular project. And they've all made incredibly compelling 
cases for why we should fund them. You don't see any of those before you in my budget. Alder Miadze tells WORT that he understands the council's hesitancy. He adds that action needs to be taken to address food insecurity on the north side. The north side is so heavily um, overlooked in the city and that I believe that sometimes, you know, I do agree that there is a certain process that sometimes needs to be followed. But at the same point, I believe there are certain times that we as a city have an obligation to make sure that all the parts of the city is treated equitable and making sure that it's sustainable for everybody to thrive. So this building was, I think, one crucial time that we could have looked out for the north side that is definitely underserved in order to ensure that everybody is, gets a fair. Miadze says that he expects the river to seek money from the city again before their lease is up in 2024. Mayor Rhodes-Conway was optimistic about their chances. The river is willing. They can continue to be in dialogue with our fantastic city staff about the resources that we make available and about other resources that are available in our community. And I'm confident that our staff will do the best they possibly can to bring this project to fruition. Ultimately, the vote failed 6-13. to 13. Alder Regina Vitiver proposed an alternative amendment that would have nonprofits compete for funds instead, but this also failed. Budget deliberations are continuing this evening. They started at 5.30 p.m. and may resume tomorrow evening if not finished tonight. Reporting for WORT, this is Andy Barrow. The time is now 6.16 and you're listening to the live local news on community radio station WORT. Flu season is here, but that's not the only respiratory illness that's out there these days. While COVID continues to run through society, cases of respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, have starkly risen over the past few weeks, with the state health department warning everyone to stay vigilant of the bug. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt spoke with Morgan Finke of the county health department about how to protect yourself and... Uh, from respiratory viruses ahead of the holiday season. It's really important that children work to avoid touching their face as much as possible, in particular, their eyes, their nose, and their mouth. So just being very, very uh, careful to avoid as much as possible touching the face. That was a clip from a press conference held by the state health department earlier this afternoon where health officials warned of the rise of respiratory illnesses as we get into the fall. Uh, to help unpack what's going on, I'm talking with Morgan Finke with Public Health Madison, Dane County. Uh, Morgan, thank you so much for talking with me here. 
Thanks for having me. So just to sort of start things off, I want to ask, what is the, what's the current state of RSV here in Dane County at the moment? How many confirmed cases are there out there? And specifically, what is this sort of looking like in our hospitals? Sure. So we're seeing that the uh, Wisconsin State Lab of Hygiene data for the southern region is showing um, increases of especially RSV uh, that is up until about last week. Um, last week we did see a decrease, um, but overall healthcare facilities are reporting high numbers of cases. You know, UW Health has spoken out specifically about this, that they're seeing high numbers of cases of RSV, um, and we are receiving RSV-related calls from childcare facilities as well. So we are definitely seeing the spread of RSV specifically is, is pretty high right now. Um, and and that isn't just in the you know southern region. That is, um, we're seeing that statewide, as you heard from DHS earlier today. Um, it it is it's it's not isolated to Dane County, but we are seeing that trend here as well. And so now one of the things that was talked about at the press conference today is uh, just a little bit about RSV. And it's, it's sort of known as a, a, a illness or virus for children, but uh, adults can get it too, I know. So can, can you just sort of help me understand a little bit about what RSV is? Sure. So RSV is it's largely spread through um, respiratory droplets and um, can be contaminated, can contaminate objects and surfaces. Um, and it's, it's, it's similar to a, a, a mild cold that you might get. Um, most people who get RSV will have that mild illness and recover in a week or two, similar to how you feel when you have a cold. You might have some of those respiratory symptoms, um, but there are those groups that are, are likely to have um, complications or have more severe symptoms. Um, that's, of course, infants and young children, as well as older adults. Um, and some of those uh, symptoms might be severe infections like um, involving pneumonia or, or other lung infections and um, can really cause some severe health issues for those most at risk. But anyone can get RSE and um, experience some of those symptoms and maybe not even know you have RSE, just think, you know, it's a, it's a cold, I, I'm, I'm okay. But you do risk um, infecting some of those higher, um, higher risk groups because, you know, potentially you're, you're not sure if it's RSV. And so now what is it about RSV that is making it so prevalent this year? Has this sort of spike happened uh, before in the past? Is this the sort of thing that sort of comes in waves throughout the years, or is there something special about it this year? Sure. So we have seen increases in RSV, um, but it is happening earlier in the year, earlier in that respiratory virus season than we, we typically see. So this increase is, is the, the difference here is that it is happening earlier. Um, it could be a couple of reasons that's causing that. Uh, partially, maybe people have been um, taking those COVID precautions during the last two years and have been just less likely to be exposed to RSV. You know, um, some of those precautions, of course, that we took during the pandemic, during the, the early days of COVID of, you know, social distancing, isolating yourself. Um, and, of course, like later on in the, in the pandemic with wearing a mask, um, all of those measures that, that were effective for preventing COVID are also effective for preventing RSV or any other respiratory illness. So 
that could be part of the, you know, now that folks are letting their guard down a little bit more with COVID, um, that could be a contributing factor for why they're, we're seeing a higher number of RSV and other respiratory illnesses. But, you know, that's conjecture. It's, you know, it, it could be a number of different reasons, but um, that, that could be what, why we're seeing that increase right now. And so now, obviously, we can't really discount COVID because uh, that's happening right now in the middle of all of this. So I want to ask, does COVID sort of come into play at all in any of this? What what does the sort of intersection between COVID and RSV uh, look like? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think taking those precautions to prevent COVID, things I just mentioned involving masks and, and distancing, um, and simply staying home when you're sick, uh, all of those measures will help prevent the spread of many respiratory viruses. Um, and, and again, speaking of COVID, you know, right now we are seeing low COVID transmission. Um, our CDC community levels are in the low category. That is partially due to low number of hospitalizations and percent of hospital beds being used for COVID patients. Um, however, any increase in that number could contribute to a stress on our healthcare facilities and our, our healthcare staff. Um, so, you know, as we're seeing these other respiratory viruses causing some folks to end up in the hospital, um, that's why it's so important to ensure that you're getting that COVID booster to make sure that you're not contributing to that stress and strain that's happening on our healthcare systems with with and potentially having a severe case of, of COVID that ends up in the hospital. Um, so, you know, it, it, it does relate, of course, um, and at the same time, it's, it's separate, it's different. Um, but I think just, again, taking those steps to be healthy, even just um, simple basics, you know, cover your cough, wash your hands, these are things that are always a good idea to to slow the spread of any respiratory um, illness that involves, you know, spread uh, through droplets or, um, you know, anything like that. You're, you're going to prevent that by taking those basic steps like um, covering your cough, washing your hands, staying home if you're sick, getting tested for COVID, ruling that out, and then potentially um heading to see your doctor if, if those symptoms persist. So um, I think there's definitely an intersection between not only RSV and COVID, but also flu. You know, we, we're also in flu season right now, and, um, and that's, that's a factor, of course, as well right now. And now I know that we've already sort of touched on this a little bit, but I think it's important to maybe sort of reiterate with, uh, like you said, respiratory illnesses. Uh, now, now is the time. It's flu season. Uh, RSV is here. We still have COVID. So uh, just sort of break down for me. Uh, is there anything else that we can sort of do to prevent the spread of RSV, the flu, COVID, things like that, both, uh, you know, in our day-to-day lives? And then also, you know, the holidays are just around the corner now. So how, how can we protect both of ourselves? and our family members over the holidays from from these viruses? Sure. Um, the holidays, like you said, are right around the corner. No one wants to be the person who gets their family sick or who exposes their family to any of these illnesses at Thanksgiving while, while we're in a time of celebration and, and love within families and friends. Um, so certainly getting those vaccinations plays into that, uh, making sure you're getting your updated bivalent vaccine um, also making sure you're getting your seasonal flu shot. That's another great way to help protect yourself from getting sick. Um, everyone over the age of 
six months is eligible and recommended to get their flu shot. Um, and you can actually get your flu shot and your COVID booster at the same time at the same appointment. So um, many vaccinators will, will do that, especially in, in the uh, doctor's office setting. Um, you know, and overall, Dane County does turn out for, for vaccination. You know, we've seen it with COVID. We've, we see it with the flu. In fact, Dane County is actually leading the state with 36% vaccinated for flu so far this season. Um, that compares to 23% for the state. So we're definitely off to a strong start with, with folks going out, getting their flu vaccine, following through on that. Um, but there's definitely always room for increasing that coverage. Um, you know, it's going to help you be less miserable <laughs> this winter um, and potentially protect others around you from, from getting sick. So that, that vaccine is a, is a huge step. And also, you know, we want to remember some of the things that um, help with COVID, which is, of course, having those rapid home tests on hand um, and taking one of those tests if you're feeling sick. And like I said, staying home if you are sick. So these are, these are just kind of common sense things um, that can help us prevent spread of, of all of these illnesses. Um, staying home if you're sick is just, I mean, it's, better for you if you can do that. And it's also just one less potential chance of spreading illness to other people, um, whether that's uh, COVID illness or um, RSV or flu, you know, it's, this, these are things that apply to the, to all of the, the respiratory illnesses that we see in the, in the fall and winter. So um, I would say those are, those are the main things that I would recommend folks do. Um, and then again, just washing your hands, covering your coughs, it's it's really it's simple, um, but it's something to keep in the top of your mind right now as we as we're seeing these increases. Well, Morgan, do you have just any final thoughts of anything uh, that you'd like to like to share with us here? Um, yeah, I, I think it's just it's it's an opportunity to check yourself um, in terms of seeing these increases in respiratory illness. Make sure that you're taking those steps to protect yourself from getting sick. Um, just so you can enjoy the holidays with your family uh, at ease and not worried about um, potentially spreading any kind of um, anything other than, you know, love and thanks during the holidays. So um, I, I think we covered everything other than that. I've been talking with Morgan Finke with Public Health Madison, Dane County, about the rise of RSV and other respiratory illnesses uh, here in both Dane County and across the state. Uh, Go get your flu shot. Go get your COVID uh, booster. Morgan, thank you so much again for taking the time to talk with me. Of course. Thanks so much. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Thanks for staying with us. In this archival edition of Parks and Landmarks, our feature contributor, Sean Bull, travels back to 1977, when the king of rock and roll made a stop in Madison and made history on an unassuming street corner. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. In 1977, Elvis Presley's career was in decline. His river of multi-platinum singles had slowed to a trickle of gold, but the man's stardom was still at a level we all can only dream of. 
The crown of the king of rock and roll is a lifetime appointment. Even if Elvis's career had been going downhill for two decades, he was still one of the biggest names on the planet. You can bet there were still fans waiting to greet Elvis as he got off his plane at the Madison Four Lakes Airport on June 24th. It was one in the morning, but a small crowd welcomed the king as he entered a waiting limousine and was whisked away. In late 70s, Stoughton Road was just about the eastmost edge of town. East Town Mall was just in its infancy, and Sun Prairie had yet to creep in to meet the capital city. But since Highway 51 takes commercial traffic from New Orleans to the UP, businesses along the route stayed busy. Of course, at one in the morning, busy isn't always a good thing. 45 years ago, a gas station occupied the corner of Stoughton Road and East Washington Avenue. At one in the morning, June 24, 1977, the owner of the station sent his son to kick out the teens who loitered in the parking lot. As Elvis was conveyed to his hotel, perhaps he reflected on his performance in Des Moines a few hours earlier. Perhaps he thought of nothing, content to relax and watch the city roll by. But he was yanked back to reality as the limousine pulled up to the stoplight. Not ten yards beyond the tinted glass, he beheld a gang of teenage boys beating down the gas station owner's son. He paused only for a moment, then told the driver to stop the car. The boys froze. There was no mistaking the sight before them. Elvis had leapt out of the limo, clad in his rhinestone-studded jumpsuit, layered under a black windbreaker. The king stood in his best approximation of a kung fu stance, sized up the boys through his gold-framed aviators, then declared, I'll take you on. What do you do when the world's most famous entertainer intends to fight you hand-to-hand? You, dear listener, may never find out, but the boys that night decided to back down. Could they have beat Elvis in street combat? Probably. After all, he was a lone, out-of-shape, 42-year-old man. Regardless of whether they had the advantage, I think they chose wisely. It's basically always a bad idea to get in a fight with an officer of the law. See, Elvis had a hobby of collecting badges. As he toured the country, he would sometimes stop by a local police station and be presented with an officer's badge. Of course, many of these were honorary, and anyway limited in effectiveness to the city he got them. But there was one badge, his collection's crown jewel, whose jurisdiction stretched from sea to shining sea. As it happened, Elvis Presley was an agent of the DEA. If you have a passing knowledge of Elvis's later life, it may surprise you that he was a fan of the Drug Enforcement Administration. This is the same man who, a couple months after the Madison incident, would suffer a fatal heart attack on the toilet because he was that constipated from the amount of painkillers he was taking. His ex-wife wrote in her memoir that the badge was a power thing. Quote, With the federal narcotics badge, he could legally enter any country, both wearing guns and carrying any drugs he wished. That may or may not have been true, but I also think he genuinely wanted to make a difference. He saw street drugs as dangerous and didn't see the irony of his own substance abuse. Elvis's doctor later talked about the level of denial Presley held. Elvis, quote, didn't see the wrong in it. He felt that by getting it from a doctor, 
He wasn't the common, everyday junkie getting something off the street. So, in 1970, Elvis wrote to Richard Nixon, asking to be bestowed the badge and powers of an agent of the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. Presley and the President met in the Oval Office, and by the end of the day, Elvis had his badge. He carried it everywhere, and when Nixon later folded the Bureau into the newly created Drug Enforcement Administration, Elvis added a DEA windbreaker to his offstage ensemble. In his letters to President Nixon, Elvis talked about using his narcotics badge to be an ambassador, a positive role model. He had his badge and jacket on him in Madison, but the thing is, he didn't need them. Down to his last day, Elvis Presley commanded respect beyond what any office or badge could give. That night in Madison, the man stopped a beatdown with nothing but his presence, his raw aura. Elvis helped up the station owner's son, shook hands with everyone involved, then stepped back into the limo and slipped away into the night. Just over two months later, Elvis Presley was dead. The gas station, too, eventually came to pass. The car dealership that replaced it put up a small gray marker stone along the sidewalk with a plaque recounting the Elvis fight. But now, even that is worse for the wear. Even if the plaque didn't keep wearing out, a larger-than-life tale like this deserves better than some weathered gravestone to commemorate it. As it happens, a movie about Elvis is coming to theaters this Friday, 45 years to the day after he last graced our city. Will the movie include the karate incident? I can only hope so, but I'm not sure I would be satisfied with even that as a tribute. We have five years to make up something fitting before we hit the 50th anniversary, and I think I have just the thing. Remember Bucky on Parade? A few years ago, we collectively decided that our city would be better if it were sprinkled with 80-some life-size statues of Bucky Badger, each painted and themed differently. And we were absolutely right. I still think back fondly on the summer of 2018 when I would explore the city with friends, discovering a new Bucky each time we went out. Maybe I shouldn't infer a pattern from two instances, but if you count the 2006 Cow Parade, it seems we're due fiberglass statues every 10 years or so. Can you imagine if, in summer 2027, Madison was descended upon by dozens of karate Elvis statues? At every turn, a brightly painted rock star hands up, ready to defend the city. Not only would this be the perfect amount of fun and whimsical, it would provide closure on and recognition for an event which I still believe hasn't been covered enough. Just think about it. And until that day comes, thanks for listening. Thank you very much. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, my email is sean.bull at wortfm.org. For WORT News, I'm Sean Bull. And from Sean Bull on to the weather. 
Well, the last couple of days have pretty much played out as we expected, though the snow kicked in earlier yesterday and a little more uh, vigor uh, early on than I anticipated, laying down a good inch or so even before sunrise. We ended up with 2.8 inches for the day, which is apparently a record for November 15th, though I did find a bit of a discrepancy in the matter between checking online climate data and some older paper records that I have from the National Weather Service office that used to be here in Madison. Uh, Be that as it may, though, the snow has certainly been lovely the past uh, day or two, sifting down softly beneath a dark but not terribly thick low overcast, which uh, became increasingly obvious its thinness did this afternoon when it thinned enough to actually show the sun through it and even some patches of blue sky from time to time. Right along, though, the snow has been generated out of what is a relatively thin, saturated layer, mostly in the lowest mile above ground level, and from rather gentle uh, isentropic isentropic lifting. So that's the reason that the uh, snow has stayed so light. We're going to see some additional snow, light snow, in coming days, though from a more uh, convective-type process. So I'm expecting snow tomorrow and Friday to be more uh, kind of showery and episodic in nature. Uh, This will be related to the incoming Arctic air, which is going to begin filtering into the area tomorrow, only to be bolstered then by a couple more uh, more robust surges on Friday and again Saturday. Have a look at the uh, water vapor image of the U.S. that's up top of the featured graphics on the WORT weather webpage this evening. And you'll be able to get a sense of uh, what's been producing our snow the past couple of days and what will be coming at us for this coming weekend. Notable on that image is the little leftward curl in the vapor that slices by us uh, to the southeast from about Missouri and up through northern Indiana and then on across Lake Huron. That's between about Monday night and through yesterday. And that was what was helping to swirl the warmer air northward and northwestward up and over us on its lead side as it came through, producing that snow yesterday. And in the wake of that system today, you can see uh, from the yellow isobars that are overlaid on that image, the lingering cold front that's uh, been left lying basically across Wisconsin from west to east. That's slowly pushing south now. And uh, that frontal convergence is what helped produce that few continuing flurries that we had today. Meanwhile, to the northwest, barreling southward out of Alberta and Nebraska is the Arctic air mass that's going to press in here Uh, A little bit tomorrow, as I mentioned, but primarily Friday and Saturday. As you can see from the trajectory of the cold air there uh, coming down the western plains, this Arctic air is going to reach us on westerly rather than northerly winds in the coming days. And given a fairly strong pressure gradient that will develop as this much denser Arctic air pours in, those winds will be pretty brisk, especially with the stronger of the two cold fronts on Saturday. And with steep low-level lapse rates that set up and uh, with some continuing moisture in the lowest mile of the atmosphere, daily strata cumulus are likely to keep the skies dark, uh, probably punctuated also by passing snow showers, especially tomorrow, I think also Friday and possibly on Saturday as well, uh, perhaps more briefly. The center of the Arctic surface... uh, Arctic surface high pressure then will pass on Sunday, uh, pass to our south. That will finally, I think, clear out some of the low clouds anyway, and eventually start uh, to warm us with its rear side southerly fetch as we get out into next week. And next week, as it did back on this Monday uh, forecast behind us, uh, next week does still look significantly warmer. 
But back to tonight, uh, skies may continue to clear a little bit more, but uh, by and large, I think low clouds will continue to drift south over us through the night, possibly still throwing down a flurry or two from time to time. Temperatures will drop to the low 20s by dawn. Uh, Northwesterly winds up at uh, 3 to 7 miles per hour, backing more westerly and increasing a little bit as we get on towards dawn. Tomorrow, a uh, thickened pad of overcast uh, as we go through the morning hours will, I think, deepen enough for passing snow showers as we get into the midday hours in the afternoon. Temperatures will recover uh, maybe a few degrees into the mid or upper 20s on increasing westerly winds, which will come up to 10 to 15 miles per hour by the end of the day. I don't expect too much additional accumulation from the snow, but the showers themselves could uh, put down some pretty fast totals you know, briefly as they pass. Skies will remain mostly cloudy overnight with temperatures descending towards uh, 20 or so, perhaps the upper teens on westerly winds at 10 to 15 miles per hour. And Friday will continue mostly gray with uh, snow showers again possible in the afternoon hours especially, I think. Temperatures will uh, basically go nowhere on Friday, probably holding just around 20, maybe creeping up from that a degree or two. On westerly winds, which will be up at 10 to 17 miles per hour, the temperatures will fall back into the lower mid-teens during the ensuing overnight with westerly winds backing southwest ahead of uh, cold front number two. And Saturday will be cold and windy and still fairly gray with temperatures again struggling to reach 20. Uh, noticeably drier air coming in and making your eyes water, especially with the westerly winds up at 12 to 20 miles per hour, probably fairly gusty in the afternoon as well will drop to the upper single digits in the overnight going into Sunday. We'd drop lower if the winds had come down, but we will have west and northwest winds uh, a little bit lighter at least, down to 8 to 12 miles per hour, and those winds will be backing southwesterly on Sunday, taking us back to the low 20s with the aid of a bit more sunshine that day. And temperatures should increase rather rapidly as we get back on uh, Monday and Tuesday of next week. At the moment, at the station down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 33 degrees. The dew point temperature is 25. Winds are out of the northwest, fairly light, 4 miles per hour. Uh, it's a few passing low clouds, around 4,000 feet, and some mid-level clouds up above that. Uh, barometer is rising at 30.13 inches of mercury. Time is now 6.48, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to November 1965, a time of civil rights speeches, anti-war protest, and urban renewal. 
Stu Levitan has the headlines from 57 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, November 1965 The country's two most important civil rights leaders visit the UW campus this month on the second, John Lewis, the 25-year-old national chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, returns to Madison for two speaking engagements, starting with a noon rally on the Memorial Union steps. That night, he tells a crowd of about 400 in the Great Hall that, quote, racism is embedded in the very heart of this country, a system of segregation which puts more value on property rights than on human rights. After a standing ovation, the group moves up Langdon Street to the Hillel Foundation for a freedom hoot nanny. During the voting rights march from Selma to Montgomery in March, Lewis was severely beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. On the 23rd, Nobel Peace Prize laureate Dr. Martin Luther King returns to the Stock Pavilion to speak on the future of integration, the same title as his address in 1962, but with a different text. The Baptist minister gets a standing ovation from a near-capacity crowd of about 2,600 with his call for a massive program of public works, expanded public education, an increase in the minimum wage to $2 an hour, and the employment of blacks in southern law enforcement. November 23rd is also Campus Election Day, and among those elected to the Wisconsin Student Association Student Senate is history graduate student Paul Soglin. The Illinois native campaigned for, quote, a radical approach to student government, one that challenges the decadent order, in which the student joins with the administration in determining curriculum, tenure, and other major decisions. Soglin wins a narrow victory after one of his two opponents is disqualified for a false campaign poster. Students also proved by two to one a referendum directing the WSA to limit itself to campus issues and not take stands on national or international issues that don't directly affect UW students. And a professional politician comes to campus, U.S. Senator George McGovern, Democrat of South Dakota, for a day-long appearance at the university's politician-in-residence. Recipient of the Distinguished Flying Cross during World War II, McGovern calls for a stop to the bombing in Vietnam, but not a military withdrawal. He also visits with his daughter Susan, a student at the university. In other protest news, six members of the Committee for Direct Action, arrested during their sit-in at the entrance to Truax Air Base last month, are found guilty of loitering in a public street and fined $25. The activists, also leaders of the Committee to End the War in Vietnam, were attempting a citizen's arrest of the base commander. And it's a blustery 20 degrees on the Saturday after Thanksgiving when about a dozen protesters from a group called Vietnam Dissenters, dressed in black with faces painted white, marched from campus to the Capitol carrying a coffin made of paper and wood. As they near the Capitol, about 15 members of the Citizens in Support of the United States Soldiers in Vietnam group hurl raw eggs and smash the mock coffin. Police observe the assault without response. And putting their money where their mouths would have been, 
More than 4,000 residence hall students give up their Thursday dinner the week before Thanksgiving, raising over $3,500 in this year's Fast for Freedom fundraiser for the Mississippi Poor People's Corporation and the National Student Association. Closer to home, documentation of poor people in Madison. As the first report of the South Madison Rehabilitation Area documents the pocket of poverty in the area south of Winger Creek and east of Park Street. One third of the 202 households are considered impoverished, with annual incomes of less than $3,000, almost three times the countywide figure of 12.8% impoverishment. Unemployment is 24%, 10 times the Dane County figure. 59% of the 721 individuals are non-white, and just over half of the total population is under 18. It's a stable neighborhood. 15% have lived there all their lives, or more than 25 years, and almost two-thirds have been residents for more than five years. But more than 25% say they moved there because it was the only area a black family could find housing. 15% say it was all they could afford. Support for an urban renewal project in South Madison is overwhelming. 88% think it's a good or very good idea. And there are encouraging signs in the Triangle Urban Renewal Project. Interest in the proposed shopping center set for the southeast corner of Park and Regent Streets is so strong that the Madison Redevelopment Authority votes for a design competition. Rather than simply selling the land to the highest bidder, the MRA will set a price and have a panel of experts judge the submitted designs, then negotiate with the firm with the best plan and highest economic value. At least four firms have formally expressed interest in building the center, which is to include a grocery store and various neighborhood retail businesses. There is no question we will be able to install an excellent center which will service the area, says MRA Director Saul Levin. Madison Police Chief Wilbur Emery finally makes real progress in his war on bicycles. When the Traffic Commission recommends an ordinance banning the two-wheelers from the Capitol Square and State Street and restricting their use on several major traffic arteries during rush hour. Also under consideration, mandatory bike registration and licensure of bicyclists and formally designating bike routes. Mayor Otto Feske calls the proposed ban an imperfect solution and promises to give careful consideration to student opposition. And there's a wide range of musical offerings this month. On the 8th, jazz multi-instrumentalist Roland Kirk dazzles a capacity crowd at Turner Hall in a benefit for the Committee to End the War in Vietnam and the Madison Citizens for Peace in Vietnam. A week later, genial folk rock chart toppers Sonny and Cher delight the teens for two shows at the Orpheum. And homegrown recorded music, too. On the 9th, Central High graduate Tracy Nelson, a month shy of 21, releases her first folk blues record album, Deep Are the Roots, on the prestige level. But the Shorewood Hills native, who volunteers at the Plymouth Congregational Church's daycare center, and has completed two years of studies in social work at the UW, isn't planning on a career in music. She thinks she'll go into teaching. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, music-loving, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan.
And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. And since we have an extra moment this evening, I'll remind you that this show is put together largely by volunteers, and we could certainly use your help if you'd like to join us. No training in uh, journalism or in radio is necessary. We'll provide all of that for you, and so it's a pretty good deal and a lot of fun. So get in touch with the station during business hours if you're interested. Your headline writer this evening, or if you can read the script without tripping over your tongue, we'd appreciate having you as well. Your headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Your reporter tonight was Andy Barrow. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Lovatan. Chuck Kaderman engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggie helped produce it. And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Stay tuned next for a query that will be followed by This Way Out at 7.30, and we'll be back to being an overnight music station at 8. And tune in tomorrow night at 6 for tomorrow's news. Until then, good night.